continuing today a series we started last week uh, that we've called Living the Good Life. It's a series based in the Ten Commandments. And really, over the next few weeks, our aim is to look at the Ten Commandments to try and understand what they mean and to see how they apply to us today in 21st century Britain. And also how in them we see the good life mapped out, how God intended it to be. As we go through them, I hope that you're going to see that these commandments, these instructions, these words from God were given not to constrict or squash us, not to limit our freedom in some way or to be some kind of onerous burden, but actually they were given by God as a a gracious gift to show us what it looks like to enjoy the freedom that we have in him, to live the good life as he designed it. And so we're going to jump straight into the passage today. We're in Exodus chapter 20. Today we're going to read actually the first three commandments. Um, And hopefully you'll understand why we've grouped them together as we go, but we're going to go from chapter 20 verse 1 through to 7. So we're going to read it, and then we'll dig in and seek to see if we can understand and apply them in our lives today. So we read this. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth below or that is in the water underneath. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we thank you for your word. We do thank you for these words that are intended to lead us into life. enjoyment, fullness of life, enjoying the freedom that you have won for us. I pray that you would help us to see them as such and to understand them as such today, that you wouldn't allow us to take on a a burden or a yoke of trying to keep the law in order to win your approval. Lord, but I pray you'd help us to be motivated by your grace, to, to live this out as a way of enjoying the freedom that you have won for us. Holy Spirit, would you lead us into all truth this afternoon? Would you help your word to to take root in our hearts and bear fruit in our lives? For your glory, we ask. Amen. Good. Well, we're going to dig in. Before we get to command number one, (laughs) there is something of an introduction in Exodus chapter 20. We, we know the context. Moses has been on the mountain to meet with God. And God's spoken to him. These laws for his people, these instructions. And Moses comes back down the mountain to deliver to them what God has spoken. 
And that's where we begin. And the very first thing we read is this, that God says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Before we get into anything else, God introduces himself as the one who's speaking. And he begins with, I am. (laughs) And those are two small but incredibly important words. It's a very important phrase in the Old Testament. Actually, throughout Scripture, Jesus takes that phrase, I am, and applies it to himself. God is the only one who can lay claim to that title. He introduces himself this way several times in Scripture. We find it when he reveals himself to Moses Moses at the burning bush. He says to him, I am that I am. This phrase, I am, as a title, communicates something of the eternal and sovereign nature of God. The great I am who rules over all things, always has done and always will do. Dependent on nothing and no one. That's the the essence of this phrase, I am, is is like, I am separate from all else that is. I am the eternal God. I am the only one who is dependent on nothing and no one. No one provides for him. No one else is needed and nothing else is needed for his existence. He is the self-sufficient, self-sustaining God who was and is and always will be. And there is nothing and no one else like that. There never has been and there never will be. Everything and everyone else needs provision from an external source in order to go on existing. Yes? Yes, you need food or you die, you need oxygen, or you die, you are not self-sufficient. You cannot say of yourself, I am that I am. Only God can take that title. And what's more, as he introduces himself as I am, says, I am what or who? The Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He is the one true God who has brought freedom for his people. And how did he accomplish that? Well, if we go a few chapters back, we see this story of the Exodus as God brings his people out of slavery in Egypt. And what we see is that God brought them freedom from slavery by showing himself through acts of power to be supremely more powerful than any of the so-called gods of Egypt. Any of the pretenders in Egypt, God, one by one, shows himself to be more powerful than them. And he's done the same for you and me. For those who trust in Jesus, the great I am has brought you true freedom. 
and he's brought you true freedom by triumphing over your enemies, those who would hold you captive, those who would keep you enslaved. He has brought you freedom by triumphing over sin and death. And so these words that we're about to read are not just nice thoughts. They're not just a kind of good moral code to live by. These are the instructions of the one true freedom-bringing God who rules and reigns supremely over all things. And therefore, I think we should pay attention to them. Don't you? <laughs> like if that is who he is, and if that is who's speaking these words, then we ought to listen up. He knows what's best for us. And the first thing he says is this. You shall have no other gods before me. This first command is not simply worship God more than other things. Some people could read that and think, oh, no other gods before me? Okay, cool. So that's just like God is the, like the first, and then everything else kind of you know, falls in behind that. No, no, this is not a call to make Yahweh the first of many gods in your life. It is a call to exclusive worship. Forsaking all others. This might seem like it shouldn't need saying once you've got the background, right? He is the I am who has brought freedom to us. You would feel like once you've understood that, you wouldn't need to be told, you should have no other gods before me. You'd think that would be the natural response, wouldn't you? Like who in their right mind would worship anyone or anything else when the I am has so comprehensively shown himself to be superior than everything else. It's like, where's he going to turn? Like when you've seen him as the one true freedom-bringing Lord of Lords. Like, seriously? But the Israelites' temptation, and if I might be so bold, your temptation is to do just that. Rather than worship God alone, we are inclined to try and be a both-and people. To live our lives with a God-plus approach. We don't out-and-out out reject God in place of false gods, but in subtle and not so subtle ways, we add them to him. We say, there are no other gods in our life, no God before you. But I think sadly often, our lives portray a reality that's different to that. That actually we live a both-and life at times. We think and even sometimes say things like this, I need God, and I need a well-paid or fulfilling job. 
I need God. And I need a spouse. I need God. And I need recognition from people for what I do and how good I am at it. I need God. And I need financial security. I need God. And I need to be sexually fulfilled. It's a big one in our day and age. We excuse our both and approach to life because we reason that we're still worshipping God. But the truth is that failing to worship God exclusively, according to God, is failing to worship Him at all, really. In fact, Jesus cites money or mammon, the, the God of money, the idol that money can be, the false God of money, as an example of this kind of both and worship that we're tempted to give and how it doesn't work. So we read Jesus in Matthew 6, 24. He says this. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus is speaking directly into this both and kind of life that so many, including the Israelites and each one of us, are tempted to live. And he says, you you can't do it. (laughs) Like it doesn't actually work. You, you oscillate from one to the other in this kind of chaotic, this one, the true God, and then money, I'm chasing after that, maybe that will fulfill me, or sexual fulfillment, whatever it might be, I'm chasing after that thing. You cannot serve God and money, pride, whatever it might be. It doesn't work. Any attempt to do so is exhausting and gets you in a big mess very quickly. This first commandment is about the worth of God alone to be worshipped. Remember how he's introduced himself, how he's revealed himself. The great I am. Like who else could be worthy of our worship in the way that he is? The one who's freed us from slavery. Who else could be worthy of our devotion the way he is? It's about the worth of him to be worshipped, but it's also for our good, which is the thrust of this series, all of these commands are about his glory and about our good. You see, worshipping anything else other than the one true God will ultimately enslave you. Giving yourself to anything else in worship leads to captivity. It doesn't free you. See, God brings us freedom. He truly satisfies us. God, the great I am, who who needs nothing from no one, gives and gives and gives and gives. He's the only one who can ceaselessly give because he needs nothing. That makes sense, doesn't it? But all false gods enslave They promise something that they can't deliver and then they take, take, take. And in the end, they fail you anyway. 
never deliver what they promise they will. It's hollow, empty promises. People, you might put your hope in them, will mess up or fail you at some point. Possessions break or get tarnished. Our health doesn't last. Our intellect fails. And yet we can be tempted to place our hope in each and every one of those things and a myriad more as we try and live a a God plus life. Commandment number one is clear, and it's for our flourishing. The only way to enjoy freedom is to forsake all else, to worship Him. We're to worship God alone, the God who has exposed all His rivals as hollow and useless, and who has won freedom for His people is worthy to be worshipped exclusively. Having established who we're supposed to worship, commandment number two then is concerned with how we worship. Let's read together. We read from verse four. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Some people take this second commandment as almost a repetition of the first. That you shall have no other gods before me. And then they hear this about not making a carved image or likeness of anything in heaven, setting up an idol. And they think, oh, this is about the worship of false gods again. This is worshipping something other than Yahweh. But that's not actually quite the case. This is about a way of worshipping Yahweh that is wrong and is enslaving. It is enslaving. You notice the degenerative pattern that's laid out. So it begins with make. You shall not make for yourself an idol. And then it, you shall not bow down. You shall not serve. It's this downward cycle of giving ourselves in worship to an image you end up being enslaved to something you made. That's crazy, right? (laughs) You made it, and you end up bowing down and serving it. Wild. And helpfully, the Israelites give us a great example of exactly this in Exodus chapter 32. So Moses is up the mountain, meeting with God again, And while he's there meeting with God on behalf of the people, they get fed up waiting. They're like, man, he's been up there a long time. Like, it's a bit boring down here waiting for him. And they petition Aaron, who's set up as a leader in Moses' place while he's up the mountain, to make for them a god or an idol or an image which they can worship. We find in Exodus 32, from verse 4. This is, and he, that's Aaron, received the gold from their hand. 
So they ask him to make this image. He says, okay, bring me all your gold. And this is what happens. He received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. So what's he done? Step number one, you shall not make for yourself. He has made for himself and for the people an image of a calf. And they, and they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. This is there, the people's response. Oh, this is it. This calf that Aaron's just made. This is it. The gods, they've gone plural instead of one, who brought you up from Egypt. (laughs) When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. This is a total mess. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings and the people sit down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's what they say. These are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. Are they attributing to this calf? How did we start Exodus 20? I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. And what does Aaron say? Tomorrow we shall feast to the Lord, to Yahweh. (laughs) This calf for Aaron and the people is not another God. (laughs) This is in their thinking an image now of the great I am, of Yahweh. They have taken the God of heaven, and made a calf and said, that's what he looks like. Let's bow down to that. This is crazy, isn't it? (laughs) Aaron makes a gold calf which they bow down to and worship and bring offerings before it and claim that it is in worship of the Lord that they are doing so. This is mad ridiculously, Aaron wants to worship this image, wants them to worship this image as God. But just look at it. It's small. (laughs) God is not small (laughs) in any way. It's created. The great I am is creator. It's new, but will grow old. God is eternal. The the I am. It is an inanimate, lifeless lump of metal. God is the giver, the creator and sustainer of life. It is blind and deaf and mute, and yet God sees, hears, and speaks. It's pathetic. Why on earth did he do it at all? And why did he make a calf? Well, remember where they've been. They've just come out of slavery in Egypt. And one of the most worshipped false gods in Egypt had lots of statues to it. was a bull. 
the bull god. Apis. See, the people have been living in Egypt surrounded by statues of gods which people worshipped and they now petition Aaron, we want one like that too. We want one that we can see. (laughs) And it just so happens too that in Canaan, the land to which they're headed, again, one of the main so-called gods worshipped was the bull god, El. But Aaron makes a calf, not a bull. (laughs) The Yahweh of Aaron's imagination was like a more approachable, less intimidating version of the pagan gods that the people around them worshipped. He wanted the approval of the people making Yahweh seem like a more fluffy, likable El or Apis seemed like a good shout. They want one that they can see, like, we'll make one that's nice. We'll make a nice one that's approachable. <laughs> and before you think he's crazy, I want you to see how we can do this as well. See, we take the attributes, the essence of the gods of this world, the things that this world idolize and pursue and give themselves in devotion and worship of, and we try to make Yahweh in their image. The prosperity gospel, the idea that that God is just there to make you healthy and wealthy and prosperous is a particularly common and twisted form of just this. Exactly what's happening. We try to make Yahweh in the image of the things that people outside of the church worship. And just like the calf instead of the bull, we try and make him as palatable as possible for ourselves and for others. Take money, for instance. Jesus was really clear about the false god of money and giving ourselves to money, to manon. And on the surface, we heed the warning, don't we? We read it and we're like, yeah, we mustn't mustn't do that. (laughs) We look at our neighbours, perhaps, our unbelieving friends, spending their days pursuing money and the apparent security that it offers them. Yet, we see too them never believing that they have enough, never really satisfied. There's always more. There's always more, because that's what idols do. They promise you something that they don't deliver, and so you keep going. They take, take, take. We see the futility of it, and we think, we would never be like that. (laughs) But we go ahead and fashion God into a, a gentle, timid, generous mammon. 
When we have an abundance, we think it's because we've earned some kind of blessing from God by our great faith. And when we lack, we question his love or our faith. And we can do this in a whole myriad of ways with different things. When things are going well, we can be inclined to think that it's because we have done something to deserve or earn God's favor if we bring God into it at all. And when things go wrong, we can be quick to ask, why me, God? What did I do to deserve this? We often care, we often, more often than we care to admit, shape God according to our preferences and our comforts. We, we want a God in our thinking that's, that's comfortable, manageable, tame, as it were. More of a calf than a bull. You've probably heard people say things like, my God would never do that. Not my God. <laughs> you think, who's defining who God is and what he would and wouldn't? Are you allowing him to define it, the great I am? Or is that your decision, like Aaron making that calf? Like, we go for one that's kind and generous and loving, but big but not intimidatingly so. We can, I think, at times foolishly, subconsciously think that God needs some help with his PR. And the truth is, we're the ones looking for approval, actually. We don't want people to think that we believe in or follow a God that they wouldn't like or they would find offensive. And so we minimize or entirely remove things that we or those around us are not comfortable with. Like wrath or judgment. Because we don't like those bits. We make a God of our liking. Assuming that whatever we think is right or wrong, he'll agree. (laughs) The second commandment says, don't do it. Don't do it. There is one God who deserves all our worship and we don't get to determine what he's like. He reveals himself to us. The the primary way in which he's chosen to do that is through his word. That's how we get to know what he's like primarily. We worship him in the way in which he reveals himself, not in the way in which we want to. That's what the second commandment's all about. Don't don't make an image for yourself. He alone gets to reveal what he's like, and he has done it in his word, and then ultimately in the person and work of Jesus. This instruction, again, is for our good. The image we create, like that calf, just sell us so far short of the glory of God. We we have such a small, diminished, anemic, unhelpful view of God when we worship a God of our own creation, our own imagination, 
He's so much better than you could possibly imagine. He's so much better than anything that you could try and create or come up with. He's so much better. And when we create these images to worship, we end up enslaved instead of free. We make them, we bow down to them, and we serve them. And we're captive. We end up worshipping our preferences instead of the great I am. And I can tell you now, your preferences are powerless to save you. They cannot bear the weight of your hope. Freedom is found in worshipping God alone as he has revealed himself, not how you want him to be. And before we get to number three, which is going to fill out this even further in terms of our response to the great I am, we can't ignore some verses in the middle that we just read a moment ago. (laughs) We read this from verse five, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And we're like, whoa, hold up. Remember who we're worshipping. As he reveals himself, not the calf that we might try and want to make him out to be. God is jealous. But we have to understand, not in a petty petulant toddler, I want that toy kind of jealous. No, no. As one who is fully worthy of worship and who knows what's best for you, who knows what freedom in the truest sense is, and he's jealous for your good and his glory. When you give yourself to other things, he's rightly jealous for his glory. He's the only one who could be. Remember, he's the great I am. He's also jealous for your good. He knows that when you give yourself to other things, you end up enslaved. He's jealous, God. And then we have these verses which we can get confused about that say visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And you go, what? And some people would say things like, well, this is like, if, you, if your parents sinned, then God will punish you for their sins. Like, even if you're innocent, you're totally innocent, and your children too. <laughs> That's not what's being communicated here. And actually, when you work your way through Scripture, that's not what this is about. This isn't some strange idea of innocent children or grandchildren being punished by a vindictive God for something their parents or grandparents did. When something is unclear in Scripture, we have to read the context, and we have to read the rest of Scripture to help us understand what it's talking about. We've not got time to do a deep dive today, but I'd encourage you to study it if you're interested, but simply, this is about heritage, what you pass on to your children. 
People who reject God and practice idolatry, worshipping a God of their imagining, are most likely to raise children who reject God and worship a God of their imagining. That makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah? And likewise, the opposite is true. Those who worship Yahweh in spirit and in truth, who love Him and obey His commands, are likely to have children who worship Yahweh, who love Him and obey His commands. So parents, what are you passing on? I, I don't want this to be heavy, right? This doesn't always work like that. And I know there are plenty of faithful parents who have children who've rejected God and wandered away. I, and I know that that's painful. And I've prayed with lots of you lots of times for your children. I want to continue to do so. But I'm just, like these verses, I just want to point out that it's not some weird kind of, like you do something, then your grandchildren are going to get it in the neck for it. Like as if they're innocent. That's not what's being communicated. But I do want us to take seriously those of us who do have children. To consider what are we passing on? Worship of the one true God which leads to life? Or idol worship that leads to death? It's important. And then we finally get to this last of these three commands. In verse 7, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And we get to this one, and the majority of people go, Ah, oh, I, I know this one. <laughs> you don't have to explain this. I've got it. Don't blaspheme. Like, this is about what we say, right? Don't take the name of the... I, I, and I don't. Well, hardly ever anyway. Like, if I was really, really cross, sometimes it's... But just... <laughs> I, I'm not making light of it because actually that is part of what this is about it is about our speech in part to take the name of the Lord and to, to cheapen it or belittle it as a swear word or an expression of frustration is, is one aspect of what God is saying don't do it don't do it because actually it brings down your view of the great I am. In, instead of using his name for worship and adoration and adoring who he is, you take it and you bring it down like making a golden calf. It belittles who God is in your thinking, in your speaking. But it's only one aspect. The full scope of this is about your whole life. It couldn't be more broad. Words and actions. Uh, Thomas Watson, who's been dead a good number of years now, but he said lots of very helpful things during his life. A Puritan said this. He said, hypocrites take God's name in vain. Their religion is a lie they seem to honor God, but they do not love him. Their hearts go after their lusts. Their eyes are lifted up to heaven, 
but their hearts are rooted in the earth. This commandment is about hypocrisy in the way we live compared to the way we speak about God. When we hear God's commands and call him Lord, if you call him Lord, and then live with no regard for him or his commands, then we take his name in vain. We say one thing, he's Lord. And then we live as though that means nothing. We take his name in vain. Another way that this can work out in our lives is is misattribution. Or as some people might express it, playing the God card. This is way more common than should be the case. I, I think possibly more now in this day and age than ever. See, historically, what I mean by playing the God card is using the name of God to justify doing something you want to do. It's taking his name in vain. An abuse of the name of God. And historically, this has been done so much, right? History is littered with tragic stories of people using the name of God to justify all kinds of atrocities to justify their own agenda, big and small, from crusades and slavery through to day-to-day decision-making. And you might hear me say crusades and slavery, and you're like, well, like I'm, that's nothing to do with me. I, I've not done that. Maybe you haven't. I hope not. That's good. But <laughs> maybe you've done this. Someone advises you against doing something you want to do. Simple. God told you. Huh? Bulletproof. God told me to do it. I don't need to take your advice. Don't want to do something that someone's asked you to do? Easy. You prayed about it, and God told you to do something else. Bulletproof. (laughs) Like, I'm making light of it, perhaps, but guys, this happens probably way more often than you'd care to admit. And actually, it's serious. When we do it, we take the Lord's name in vain. We cheapen it. We belittle it. We put ourselves in his place, our agenda, not his, our glory, not his. We try and use his name to accomplish our ends rather than submitting ourselves to his will and his ways. The mess and trail of brokenness that results is clear to see when we look around us. There is one true God to be worshipped as such in word and deed. That's what these three first commandments are all about. There is one true God. The God who brought us out of slavery. The God who knows what's best for us. Who loves us. Loves us enough to free us. And to show us how to live in and enjoy that freedom. For his glory and for our good. There is one true God to be worshipped in word and deed. As he directs not as we think best.
as he determines, not the God of our imagination, but the God of Scripture, the great I am, the one who was and is and is to come. And so I want to encourage us to make it our aim to live out these commands, knowing that it's right and good, knowing who he is and seeing that this is the only appropriate response to his glory and his goodness. I want to encourage us to make this our aim, knowing that it's God's good design for our lives. Actually, that flourishing and fruitfulness is found in living this way, in worshipping him alone, not giving ourselves to false gods. We want to make this our aim, knowing that it's best for those around us too. That when we live in this way, it benefits and blesses those around us. We want to make this our aim, secure in the fact that when we fail and come up short, there's forgiveness to be found. Like, this is our aim. (laughs) But when we fall short, there's forgiveness to be found in the finished work of Jesus. His perfect record given to us as though it were our own. And so we go again and make it our aim. Knowing we're free and determined to live in the goodness of the freedom we've received. I want to pray for us to that end and then we're going to come to the table and share communion.